0: Looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Paul, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 112 of Live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWoskin Show. As always, I am your host, Jeff DeWoskin. Great to have you back for what is sure to be our most newsworthy episode ever. Why, you say? Our guest today is Mort Krim. That's right, Mort Krim. Mort ruled the Detroit Airwaves at WDIV as head anchor for 19 years. But it was his time in Philadelphia prior to being in Detroit that he and his co-anchor Jessica Savage became the inspiration for the lead characters in Will Ferrell's Anchorman movie. That's right. Mort Crimm was the inspiration for Ron Burgundy. I think you'll agree that kind of makes Mort Crimm a kind of a big deal. So buckle up as we get ready to talk to the real Anchorman. We talk about Mort's amazing career as a journalist, his friendship with Colonel Sanders, his time in Detroit, appearing on the Comedy Central TV show Detroiters. And of course, Mort Crimm's book anchored a journalist's search for truth, which I believe if you order now, you can get as a leather bound book. Perfect for your mahogany shelves. All right. The last part might not be true, but the book is real. Mortcrimspeaks.com is where you can get a autographed copy of the book. But wait, listen to the interview first, because Mort Krim is kind enough to offer all my listeners a special discount code so you can enjoy the book for a little less than advertise on the website. A million great stories coming up from one of the greatest people in journalism. My conversation with the real Ron Burgundy, Mort Crim is coming up in just a few minutes. If you're jumping into the podcast right now, there's about a hundred some other episodes for you to catch up on. So I envy you and and all that you're about to enjoy. As you work your way backwards, last week's episode with Anson Williams was so great. Hearing his firsthand account of watching Robin Williams create Mork for Morg and how he helped bring national attention to the Heimlich maneuver and his product alert drops that he created to help save lives. So many amazing stories he shared with us. And I thank you all for the kind emails and notes and tweets that you send, uh, letting me know that you enjoyed the interview. If you loved rocking around the clock with me and Anson Williams, and you're going to love the upcoming Happy Days interviews I have, I'll roll them out throughout March. But keep your eyes out for a couple more great deep dives into one of my favorite shows growing up, Happy Days. That's coming up all this month. And now it's time for the social media tip. All right, well, this is one of my favorite parts of the show where I share a little bit of my social media knowledge with you. A little 411 I picked up on the street. I've been in the social media game for a long, long time. And I believe if we share information, we are gonna all raise our social media game together. These are meant just to be quick tips, nay, insights, so that you can go and Google it up if you wanna learn more. But sometimes just knowing it exists is half the battle. So on Twitter, they've rolled out a new feature called downvote. Now, a downvote only appears on a reply to a tweet, not a tweet itself. So people cannot go and downvote your original content, but they can give opinions on replies to your content. The idea is that if people find something offensive or irrelevant to the conversation you're creating, they can downvote it. Then the Twitter algorithm can rearrange the replies in the order that they are most relevant, meaning the ones that don't get the downvotes. If you're on Reddit, you're familiar with downvotes. You probably downvoted some of my stuff, (laughs) I kid. The difference between Reddit and Twitter is on Reddit it's public and on Twitter, the number of downvotes you get is not public. As always, it's meant to help keep the integrity of Twitter alive and the conversations healthy. The only downside I see is obviously it could be used to harass or target somebody or a dissenting opinion that you don't agree with. As always, a lot of these things that they put in our hands, it's up to us to be good citizens of the world and use it appropriately. So as Downvote comes out, let me know what you think. Tweet at me, at Jeff DeWoskin Show. Check it out. If you don't have it yet, you'll have it soon. It's rolling out. I have it on some of my accounts, not on all. Use it appropriately, and let's help keep Twitter a safe place for everyone. And that's the social media tip. I do want to thank everyone for supporting the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here live from Detroit, the Jeff DeWaskin Show. And that's how we keep the lights on. Today's interview sponsor is the San Diego Zoo's brand new Kodiak Bear Live with the Bears exhibit weekend expedition. Have you ever thought about living with the bears? Well, now you can at the San Diego Zoo. You can go nose to nose with the Kodiak Bears eat what they eat, sleep when they sleep, and enjoy the pleasant faux surroundings that only the San Diego Zoo can provide you. Do you love bears? Well, you're just one waiver away from spending the weekend with them. Contact the San Diego Zoo directly at sandiegozoo.com for more details. You will not immediately regret this decision. You know what else you won't immediately regret? Tuning the rest of the world out and focusing on my conversation with the real Ron Burgundy, Mort Krim. Because that's coming up right now. There was a time, a time before cable, when the local anchorman reigned supreme, when people believed everything they heard on TV. And in Detroit, one anchorman was more man than the rest. His name was Mort Krim. In a voice that could make a wolverine purr. In other words, Mort Krim was the man. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show, Mort Krim. Thank
1: you, Jeff. That's going to be a hard act to follow.
0: (laughs) I'm excited to talk to you, Detroit legend. I know you got tons of great stories. I. I wanted to kick off with a little Anchorman intro because, uh, as everyone should know or will know right now, you were the inspiration for Anchorman. Uh, that had to have been a thrill. I had to, but I did have one quick question for you before you found
1: out. Had you watched the movie? Actually, I found out before the movie came out, the first movie. But the fact that he had, uh, that Will Ferrell had based the character and the premise of the Anchorman show. Uh, on Jessica Savage and me when we were co-anchoring Philadelphia, did not get wide distribution. There were a few people who knew it. He had mentioned it, I think, in an interview on on PBS, but it was only after Anchorman 2 uh, was being promoted by Paramount that he did the interview with Rolling Stone, in which he not only revealed my name and the role that I had in in the design of that movie, but he also, uh, Rolling Stone had my picture uh, in the article. Well, that triggered an avalanche of requests from national media, Good Morning America, Fox and Friends, all the the national morning shows uh, wanted to know how did it feel to be parodied in that movie. So yes, I knew before Anchorman one came out, but I don't think much of the country knew. But before Anchorman two came out, uh, it was pretty well known everywhere.
0: And I know you were a good sport about it. But as as you were watching the the show, what was it like watching it with your family and
1: well, them knowing that this was this was based on you? First of all, I like good parodies, and even before Will Ferrell and Anchorman, uh, in in an earlier generation, in my generation, there was Ted Knight playing the anchorman role of Ted Baxter on the Mary Tyler Moore Show. And uh, it was a spoof. It was a parody. It was all in good fun. And I had the good fortune when I was anchoring in Philadelphia of getting Ted Knight on my real newscast to do an interview when he was playing the, the buffoon Anchorman, Ted Baxter. I think we always have to be able to laugh at ourselves. And I met Will Ferrell at the uh, premiere of Anchorman 2. He invited my wife and me to, to be his guests at the premiere in New York and at the after party. Uh, he thanked me for showing uh, such a good humor. He said, you've been a good sport about the whole thing. I've seen a lot of your interviews on television. And he said, I want to thank you for taking it in good humor. And I said, Will, if you had billed that movie as a documentary, I'd really be pissed. But (laughs) I said, as as satire, as a comedy, as a spoof, I thought it was well done and, and it was fun. And I certainly didn't take any offense at it. I mean, when I was growing up, my role models, the people I looked up to, were Edward R. Murrow and and later Walter Cronkite, Eric Severide, Huntley Brinkley. I prided myself throughout my career of being a serious journalist. So I had enough self-confidence and enough belief in how I approached my profession that I wasn't at all bothered by somebody parodying it. You know, lawyers, doctors, business people, all of us in whatever profession we're in really need to take kind of a light touch and not take ourselves too seriously.
0: Oh, I agree. I agree. It, it was one of my favorite movies. I could watch that movie over and over again. Uh, after, I'll send you an email, a picture that we did at work where we all dressed up as the characters and made, remade the poster. I was Ron Burgundy. I, <laughs> <laughs> it must have been just uh, such a kick. I think it's an honor when anyone from Saturday Night Live kind of grabs you and kind of molds that into a character. I, th- I think it's a, it's a good thing.
1: I have a little interesting story of, uh, related to that before Anchorman 2 came out, but when all the publicity had, had been out there about my, my being a role model for, for that. I got a telephone call from uh, one of the producers. Uh, he wasn't It, was, it wasn't uh, Adam Mackey. It wasn't one of the top producers, but somebody who worked for Will Ferrer, worked in his office. And he said, we're having a birthday party for Will, and we're also at the same time celebrating the end of the shoot. And he said, we think it would be neat if you would sign, autograph a photograph to Will and uh, we'll pres we'll frame it and we'll present it to him at this after party uh, after the shoot is over for his birthday. So I got out one of my eight by 10 color photographs and I put to Will Farrell, you almost have it right. Just a little more sincerity and I signed it the real anchor man mort krim and I dated it and uh, I later heard from uh, from this guy that had asked for it he said will just absolutely cracked up and he said he hung it in his office and he said it's going to be up there for from now on so little aside
0: that's awesome that's really cool the other thing that I loved you in is detroiters which for those people listening is uh, was two seasons on comedy central with tim robinson and sam richardson and it was all based in Detroit. There are two ad ad men in Detroit doing low budget commercials and stuff. And Mort had a ongoing cameo in it, and then one full blown episode in season two. You were so funny in that
1: show. It was a fun thing to do. And again, I think you you know I've got a good sense of humor. It's sometimes kind of subtle, and and my puns often drive my family crazy. I do like to laugh, and I do I do like comedies, and so it was. It was an honor and a pleasure and just downright fun to be a part of that series. I wish it, I wish it were still on.
0: I do, too. That was that, that was a, a crime that they canceled that show. It was so funny. I always wondered what people outside of Detroit thought of it. Only in the sense that, you know, they like your commercial where you're doing Gardner White, wife yeah. yeah. And it was like it was like all parodies of these very famous like Detroit well, local commercials and things.
1: It did have a lot of inside stuff. But then if you look at Seinfeld, all of the inside New York stuff, but. I think it still translates, you know, I think the the broader audience, it's interesting, I'm still getting, I'd hate to be living off of them, but I get tiny little residual checks from that series because it plays overseas and it's being downloaded and it's on various platforms. So every once in a while I'll get a little check in the mail. So obviously it is still being seen, still being uh, uh, viewed by uh, audiences outside of Detroit and around the world.
0: That's amazing. So that was super fun to watch and you were great in it your whole everybody listening there's a commercial uh, an episode second season where mort just takes on isis and it's probably one of the funniest things i've ever oh, and seen and by the
1: way if they're if they're looking to download that that uh, particular episode it has the unique title mort <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here folks
0: all right so i right, so i want to work i want to work up to you coming to detroit 19 19- 78 as uh, the anchor man in Detroit. But you started out, you were a very uh, religious family and you were a teenage evangelist and you toured and preached.
1: Yeah. Um, I think a lot of my friends, many of my friends, most of my friends were were very shocked when they picked up my book. In the, in the opening chapter, I talk about being uh, at a revival meeting and, and preaching, and I was 16 years old. I grew up in a family of clergy. My father was a pastor of a church. His twin brother was an evangelist. I traveled with him when I was 15 and then went out on my own when I was 16, playing the piano and the accordion and preaching. That was not that unusual in those days. It was pretty unusual to be out there at 16, but there were a lot of young people who went into the ministry, uh, quite young, and particularly if they had the influences that I did in my family. My aunt was a medical missionary I had two brothers-in-law who were ministers. My great-grandfather founded the First Christian Church in West Frankfort, Illinois, and on and on and on. So uh, it was as natural for me to play preacher when I was six, seven years old as it was for most kids to play cops and robbers. It was my background. It was my heritage. But as I matured and grew up, I began to question certain things that I had been taught in this very conservative religious environment where the Bible was treated as literal history and as uh, everything being literally true, including uh, the seven-day creation of the world, and, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of tolerance for evolution, I began to question a lot of things that just didn't make sense to me as a logical, thoughtful person. And so I went through a real crisis of faith and eventually decided uh in my uh, early 20s that I could not continue to pursue my studies and and uh, for the ministry I just wasn't cut out for that. Journalism was in my mind where I could I could pursue truth without any expectation that I had to have preconceived uh, conclusions. And in the church um when you're when you're a part of a religious organization uh, and and at the forefront as a minister, you're expected to believe and to propagate and to promote certain things that are accepted as true. I couldn't do that. I wanted to. I wanted to test my faith against science, against reality, against logic, against a lot of things that just put too many questions in my mind. And so I left the pulpit. I left the study of the ministry and became a journalist. Now I didn't. I haven't given up faith, but I think, and and if you read the book, you know that uh, that is a theme that is woven throughout the book, uh, is my own personal, spiritual, philosophical struggle to know truth. The big questions, the cosmic questions is, you know, is there any purpose to life? Is there a God? Is there a creator? Is it all just a meaningless co-location of atoms that happen to produce, you know, eventually human beings? Those were the questions that I wrestled with, and in the process of wrestling with them eventually came to my own personal understanding and my own personal faith that I think has brought me in many ways to the same place my parents were, but through a much different route and with a much broader understanding and comprehension of what I think God is and what I think the purpose of life is.
0: Yes. Well said. And, you know, it is interesting. That's one of the things I really loved about your book. And you're right. I did not know that about you, that background and in terms of being evangelist. But when I was reading your book, it's fascinating, as you said, how you weave it through and when things come up and a certain crises, there was a story in the book where you talk about early on where you had to do a read about cigarettes and morally being mm-hmm. against that. And like always testing yourself against your faith at many milestones throughout your career. So I I think it was one of the things that made your book so fascinating because it wasn't heavy on. And then I met Reagan and this is what we talked about. It was.
1: It's interesting, Jeff, that you said that because it took me about three years to write the initial book. I sent it to first my agent, Susanna Einstein, very fine Literary company and she called me back in a couple of weeks and she said, Mort, I've read your manuscripts and it's really good. I think it's very well written, but she said, you know that I'm Jewish. And I said, sure, I know you're Jewish. She said, well, I never thought I would ever be saying this to anybody, but she said, I'm going to say it to you. Your book needs more Jesus. (laughs) And I thought about that for a minute and I said, Susanna, I know what you're telling me. You're telling me that my struggle with faith needs to be more dominant in the book. She said, that is your story. She said, any, any journalist can write a book about, you know, I covered this story and I was down for the Apollo 11 launch and I was with the president at Asia. A lot of reporters can tell those stories, but she said, your story, the way you began in life, uh, starting out to be a preacher and, and then go moving into journalism in this crisis of faith. She said, that is your story. And that's what you've got to go back and tell. So I took another two years to completely rewrite the book. And instead of that just being an incidental pop up here and there in the book, it became the underlying subtext. And in a sense, the theme of the book. And so I'm, I'm very gratified that you would say what you did about it because it was, it was intentional.
0: And let me put a full bookend on that. I'm a Jew, and I thought there was plenty and just enough, just the right amount of Jesus.
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, he was also, you know. Right, right, right. Yeah, He was a member of the tribe also, yeah. <laughs> he was a rabbi, in fact. <laughs> Lest we forget. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. it, it's interesting with the whole faith thing, because one of the things that I pull from the book is that, you know, the how you believed in it, or at least early on, or you were taught. that the church believed that Hollywood was the devil's workshop, right, mm-hmm. and and a highway to hell? And
1: you don't think that's true?
0: <laughs> no, I don't think I don't I don't disagree. I just, <laughs> but it's just interesting that uh, eventually you became yeah. the uh, the role model for such a uh, memorable Hollywood character. Mm. So interesting, interesting. So you're before TV, you were in radio. Right. You got yes. your start really in radio and you got you got a great voice for radio and TV.
1: Well, it, uh, back in the 1950s, and you're you're too young to remember this, but radio was still the dominant medium. And I was 12 years old before I saw my first television picture. I think I was 13, maybe when we got our first TV set. There was a lot of belief Among the professionals, the announcers and the, uh, they weren't called disc jockeys in those days, the radio hosts. And there was a lot of radio drama and comedies and, you know, the Bob Hope show and uh, Amos and Andy. And there was a, a real feeling among many of the professionals that television, yeah, it's got a place, but it'll never replace radio. It'll never be the heavy hitter. And there were there were announcers in radio who refused to make the transition over to television because they were skeptical. So that was the time that I came into the medium. Radio was still big. It was strong. And when I went to New York, I was a morning newscaster on the ABC radio network, which had probably as many listeners around the country with our twelve or 1,300 affiliates as the television, maybe more than the television morning shows had at that time. Now, obviously, that has all changed in the last 40 or 50 years. But at the time I started in radio and was in radio for 15 years before I moved into television, it was still a very, very dominant big medium.
0: So early on, when you were in radio and you had a a mentor, Paul Harvey, Mm -hmm. and he helped you kind of, when when you talked about transitioning away from the ministry, part of that conversation you had with Paul Harvey Moved you into yes. journalism, and I, th- I think the quote in the book was, uh, "Broadcasting could use a voice of integrity."
1: Yes, that was uh, Paul. He was he was very wise. In I was working, uh, I was pastoring a small church while attending seminary, while t- in South Bend, Indiana, while at the same time taking speech and broadcast courses at Notre Dame on the side. So I was I was really walking that that line and not knowing which way I wanted to go, which way I should go. Uh, There was that deeply built value system inside me that said, you've got to be a minister. You've got to follow your father. You've got to. But then there was that tug and that pull that said, no, I really want to be a broadcaster. I really want to be a journalist. So I was, and we, I worked for a radio station part-time that carried Paul Harvey's show. And he originated in Chicago. I was living in South Bend, which is about a 90-mile Drive. So I wrote a letter to Paul thinking, you know, this, at that time, he was bigger than Rush Limbaugh. Rush Limbaugh wasn't even on the scene then, but he was the biggest thing in radio, the biggest name. And he literally had more listeners than Cronkite had viewers at that time. And I thought, uh, my letter's never going to see the light of day. Some secretary will probably look at it and drop it in the waste can. But surprisingly, a few days after I sent it, I got a letter back from Paul, personal letter. And he said, uh, come on up to Chicago, bring your wife, drive up to Chicago, sit in on the nooncast, and I'll take you to lunch and we'll talk. Because I had told him, I, I said, I really need some career advice. I was, Im- I was very impressed by that. And, and we sat in on the noon show and then uh, his wife, Angel, who he identified as his executive producer, he said, she's my number one counselor. So the two of them took uh, my wife and me to lunch and um, spent the better part of an hour and a half counseling. And Paul said, I can't tell you what to do. And Paul was himself a, a, a rather religious person, a deep spiritual kind of person. And he said, I can't tell you what is the right decision for you. But he said, I can tell you that our profession needs good people of of integrity, as you just quoted. After that, he continued to, when I went into the Air Force after that, it was Vietnam era and Uh, So I had to do some military service someplace. I chose the Air Force. Uh, I ended up being a writer and producer of radio and television features for the Air Force. And I would send my material to Paul and he would critique it and uh, send it back. And then uh, when I got out of the Air Force, went to grad school at Northwestern in uh, Evanston and uh, ended up with a uh, writing job and eventually on air job at WLS radio in Chicago. Well, Paul was broadcasting out of the same building. ABC owned WLS. Their network studios were one floor above or below us. I can't remember, but they're on the next floor. I would go in and talk to him occasionally, and he was just very helpful. And then, of course, I ended up with with his network, the ABC Radio Network, uh, in New York. And whenever he would come to New York to make a speech uh, or to have a board meeting or something, he would do his show out of our studios at ABC Radio, 1926 Broadway, further deepened the friendship, and then eventually I got the call from ABC that they wanted me to be his permanent vacation substitute and eventual replacement. Well, nobody knew that he was going to broadcast until he died, still on the air at the age of 92, and by then I was in my 70s, so that was uh, that wasn't going to happen. But there is uh, the rest of the story on that score is also in the book, and that's uh, I'm not going to I'm not going to reveal anything more about that. You've read it.
0: I've read it. It, It's a great story. uh, (laughs) I love that story. I I tell you, I remember it was nice seeing Paul Harvey's name when it came up in your book because it just triggered so many memories. I remember sitting with my dad or listening to Paul Harvey and and now you know the rest of the story. It was so great. I I went and tried to see if I could listen to any of them again while I was prepping because I just when those memories triggered and they started it as a podcast, but then they only did two episodes and stopped.
1: Yeah, yeah. I was going to say you can get them on YouTube, but I don't know how many are out there.
0: All right. So definitely get the book. And then, just real quick, uh, mortcrimspeaks.com. We keep referencing Mort's book. You yeah. can; It's called Anchored, A Journalist's Search for Truth. And you can go to mortcrimspeaks.com to get an autographed copy. And then I imagine it's also on amazon.com and wherever books are sold. Yeah.
1: I will tell you something, Jeff, for the benefit of your audience. Through the holidays, through Christmas, we... Uh, Offered the book at a $10 discount by inserting the code HOLIDAY, just H O L I D A Y. I'm going to make that offer still to your listeners. We'll extend it. And if they go to my website, mortcrimspeaks.com, that's M-O-R-T-C-R-I-M, speaks.com, uh, and put in that HOLIDAY, when, when it asks for a code, put in HOLIDAY, you'll get the $10 off. And, and it will be a personally autographed book. Awesome. Thank you for
0: that. All right. So, all right. So you're in New York and this is where you had the cigarette thing that I mentioned earlier. (laughs) Did that happen a lot where you had to kind of, things would come up or where you're like, oh, this is, you know, my faith and...
1: No, because it's interesting. WNEW, I worked there for one year. They were the big independent station owned by Metro Media and they had William B. Williams. And I mean, it was... It was the kind of a radio station where it was not unusual to see Frank Sinatra walk down the halls or, you know, any of the big stars, Steve and Edie Gourmet. It, it was not unusual because they were the powerhouse station in New York. So, and they had produced a lot of network news people had gone through there and, uh, and it had ended up at the network's. So I was uh, I was real lucky coming right out of graduate school to be hired as a newscaster and writer. But once I left there and went to the network, uh, you were not expected to, in fact, you were prohibited from doing any commercials whatsoever. So that never became an issue after I left WNEW. We didn't actually read the commercials on WNEW, but we were required as newscasters to do the lead-ins for the sponsor. And I believe the lead-in was like, uh, this is Mort Krim with the 11 o'clock news, brought to you by Winston Cigarettes. And then you did a line plugging the cigarette. You didn't do the actual commercial, but you had to do that leading in. And of course, it had been ingrained in me from the time I was a kid that smoking is wrong, drinking is wrong, playing pool is wrong, card playing is wrong, dancing is wrong, going to movies is wrong. So I had shed a lot of that. But by this time, too, people were beginning to recognize that cigarettes were <laughs> pretty unhealthy so the combination of that religious uh, instilling since I was growing up plus the recognition that this was morally probably not a good thing to be promoting cigarettes and that it was a it was a dilemma for me I faced other moral choices and dilemmas throughout my career as everybody does but not that particular one again anyone of note no there's a lot of uh, intimate detail revealed in the book about my personal life and some of my personal struggles. People often do ask me if there was ever pressure from the people I worked for to change a story or to fudge on something because of sponsorship pressures. And I have to say, I was fortunate to work at it in a time and for a company. I worked the last 22 years of my life for the Washington Post Company in Detroit and 20 of it on television on, on Channel 4. And I will say that we had exceptionally good cover from the people that owned and managed our station. There was absolutely a wall of separation between the advertising department and the news department, and nobody would dare cross that. I can remember one time when we were doing it, it was an expose. It was a pretty deep dive, an investigation into a local business that had been pulling some shenanigans And they were a heavy spender on our company. They bought big-time advertising campaigns. And the owner of the company got wind that we were going to do this series of reports. I think Mike Winland had been investigating it. And he called uh, the management of the station and said, if you run that story, I'm pulling all of my advertising. I'll never spend another dime with you. And management said, too bad. And they stood by us. And the story ran. That's integrity. And ultimately, the guy had to come back around, and because he needed the advertising more than we needed him, and he, he ended up back on the station down the line after he cooled off a little bit. I was fortunate in not having to make very many of those kinds of moral decisions because I had good backing from and good integrity with the people that I worked for and with.
0: So, during that time frame when you were in New York, uh, you covered the launch of the Gemini Five, and there mm-hmm. were so many. There were so many big. Things going on at that time, you know, First Man in Space, Neil Armstrong, Robert Kennedy and MLK being assassinated, Woodstock, the Beatles. Is there any one of those where you're like, when you were reporting it, it just it felt surreal or you just, when you look back, you're like, I can't believe I was right there in the middle of that history.
1: Yeah, the 60s was an incredible decade for news some of it exciting. I mean, there was uh, Woodstock, of course, some of it tragic. We had the assassination of John F. Kennedy, Robert Kennedy, the attack of Martin Luther King, of course, and the, the attempted assassination of George Wallace. There were the campus riots. There was Kent State, the tragic National Guard shooting of those kids. Uh, there were the big city riots. I was in Newark and covered the, the Newark riot. I guess the things that, that stand out most in my memory were of course, the Apollo covering the manned space flight. That was, for those of us who were there, I guess it was akin to people watching the Wright brothers make their first flight. Here in a mere 50 years, we'd gone from uh, the shores of Kitty Hawk to putting a man on the moon. That was just unbelievably exciting. And the emotion that all of us felt who were witness to that, it's hardly describable. But and I still get a lump in my throat when I think back and, and in my mind I recreate what was going on in all of our thinking and, and imaginations at that time. Some of the more exciting things that I did were to cover presidential trips. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's seven-nation tour of Asia and the Pacific. He uh, visited each of the countries that was allied with us in Vietnam, uh, and that was along the Pacific Rim, Australia, New Zealand, South Korea, Malaysia, and we ended up in the Philippines for the, for he had called a Vietnam Summit Conference with the leaders of all those countries that, that we visited, and then made a trip to Vietnam, a one-day trip with the president to Cam Ranh Bay, where he congratulated General William Westmoreland. At that point, nobody knew just how badly the war was going and that ultimately we were going to be forced to, to get out. It was all exciting. I don't think I ever had a period in my life that was... For sheer excitement and drama uh, that was more memorable than that decade of the 60s when I was uh, covering the national news for ABC.
0: In the, in the book you call it, it was referred to as a secret trip to Vietnam with President Johnson. Does that just mean they didn't know they were coming? the, the president Does that mean they just didn't know the president was coming?
1: Well, it was a matter of security. The White House wanted to keep it secret. The fact is that the New York Times had reported, I think the day before we went, that he was probably going to make this trip to Vietnam. But they didn't want to announce it until he'd already been there and gotten back because uh, obvious threat of uh, uh, somebody uh, trying to take the president's life while he was in Vietnam or en route to Vietnam. So, it was. Uh, they called it a secret visit, but it really, by the time he got there, it wasn't much of a secret.
0: Having spent time with presidents throughout this entire time, to some degree, were there some issues with the presidents, the or the the White House, and press? I mean, now it's at like DEFCON five, but um, mm-hmm. or it was right? But um, is it is it always been contentious, or on some level, or is that kind of a, a newer phenomenon?
1: Oh, there's always been tension between the press and the White House, and there should be. The role of the press, when we're doing our job right, and uh, I, I watched a 90-minute seminar on journalism in the in the New Age last night. On the PBS had, had this uh, program, and the gentleman was a uh, editor of a new online news organization, and he was asked about the relationship between the press and or journalism and democracy. And he said, it's not a relationship, they're one and the same thing. You take away journalism, you can't have a democracy. Because to have a democracy, you have to have people making decisions, because it it is the people who make the decisions in a democracy, theoretically at least. And unless the people have information, fact-based information, on which to make their decisions, how can you have a democracy? Well, The role of the press has traditionally and historically been to be a watchdog. There's a reason why they call us the fourth estate. The legislative, the judicial, administrative, executive are the three divisions of government. And we are the fourth estate of government because it's our job when we're doing it well to be a watchdog on all the other three, as well as on business, as well as on labor, as well as on education and medical. Uh, Our job is to... Is to be the eyes and the ears of the public to make sure that all of the people who have power over us and power over the various institutions in society are kept honest and are held accountable. And that's um, that job is the same today. Now, granted, when when I was practicing journalism and back in the Walter Cronkite era, when Walter was named the most trusted man in America, think about that. How many journalists today would be named the most trusted person in America, male or female?
0: Everyone would have different answers at this point.
1: Yeah, a majority of people in the days, uh, in the uh, 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, the majority of people trusted us to tell the truth. They didn't always like the truth they heard, but the majority. Today, 46% of the people trust the media. That means more than half the people don't trust us. They don't think we're doing the job. They don't think we're honest. They don't think we're fair. They don't think we're objective. And that's uh, that is a huge challenge. Some of that has been self-inflicted. Some of it we brought on ourselves by fuzzying the line between news and entertainment. And that's particularly true of the cable channels. I tell people when I'm when I'm giving a speech and they want to know, well, where can we find information? I say, well, don't go. To Fox News or MSNBC, you go there to get your prejudice massaged. You go there if you're, if you're left leaning, you go to MSNBC to have them tell you that you're absolutely right. And this is, this is the view of the world. And if you are leaning to the right, you go to Fox and, and they will give you just the other message, but don't go there if you want, if you're looking for facts, if you're looking for truth. And I watch both channels because I like to know I lean, I, I'm a, a center leftist. make no bones about that. I would be considered a progressive, but I like to know what they're thinking and doing and saying on the other side of the aisle. And uh, I recognize that both of those are going to reinforce the worldview that you hold or they're going to make you mad if you hold the opposite worldview. But I think you have to go to you have to go to the news pages of some of our great newspapers. I do think NBC, CBS and ABC in their news programs, aside from the cable channels, but in their news programs are still trying to play it pretty straight. I watch Lester Holt just about every night on NBC, and I think he does a a phenomenal job of giving the facts. Unfortunately, it's hard to do in 21 minutes, which is what you have in a 30-minute show after the commercials are taken out. We have to be our own editors these days. Uh, Facts are out there, but we have to be, number one, willing to look for them, find out who the reputable and creditable sources are, And number two, you have to be willing to accept it, even if the facts go against what you would like them to be. If we're going to be a functioning democracy, we have to be willing to look at the world as it is, not the way we wish it were.
0: There was a, I can't, for the life of me, I can't remember the name of it right now, but there was an amazing documentary on, I think it was Netflix, about social media and the way the feeds do exactly what you just said. They feed you the information that reinforces what you think. Mm -hmm. And then Fox mm-hmm. is that version for that news side. And MSNBC, as I would watch Rachel Maddow and stuff and be like, my wife yeah. and I'd be like, yeah. And then I saw this article and yeah. I'm like, oh, my God, this whole thing is just a manipulation. It's just I'm just yeah. being fed what I want to hear. And yeah. it makes it hard, you know, then you when, especially when you have the term fake news and then, you know, all that kind of stuff happens. And
1: as long as you and I and your wife and my wife understand. That when we watch Rachel Maddow and we're being entertained and we're having our prejudices reinforced, as long as we understand that, it's fine. And I hope that people who are watching Fox understand that that's not a news channel. It's an entertainment channel that uses particularly people like Sean Hannity. They use, and Tucker Carlson, they use news information as script for entertainment. That's all it is. Facts just aren't really that important. As long as we understand that, we can, we can enjoy watching our favorite channel, but look elsewhere to find the facts about the world we live in and what's going on and have a clearer eye and a clearer head when it comes to making our decisions.
0: Jumping ahead in the, in the story in the book for a second, I think around the time of 1992, that stories started to become more sensational and there was a trend towards tabloid content. So do you think, like where we are today which is, you know, 30 years later from that point in time, but it was just a slow evolution and disintegration that kind of got us where we are today and
1: I think when news began to be a profit center. And back in the 50s and 60s, news was a was something that stations and networks did as a public service. They never thought of it as, you know, they're going to make their money on entertainment. Uh, we'll make our money on Cheers and Seinfeld and the Mary Tyler Moore Show and the news we just do because that's our obligation to the public. And then somewhere in the mid-60s, they began to recognize that news, there was a lot of interest in news. And if they made it more interesting, they could get a lot of eyeballs tuned in. And with a lot of eyeballs, that meant selling a lot of sponsorships. And suddenly it became a major profit center. And that's when when ratings then began to be as important in the newscast world as they were uh, in the entertainment world. And so the line became fuzzier and fuzzier. And that's part of what we're dealing with today. Not the whole issue, but it is it is a major issue. Got it.
0: All right. So back to the Mort Krimm And now back to the Mort Krim story. They- <laughs> <laughs> so now I want to mention Kentucky because what I loved about this part was— That you started a lifetime friendship with Colonel Sanders. (laughs) I love that. Yes. I love that. And I would, my question for you is Did he ever say, Mort, in case anything happens to me, here's the secret recipe. I trust you to keep it. You've got integrity. I trust you. I trust you with this.
1: Don't I wish. Did he
0: ever make (laughs) you fried chicken when you were over at his house so many times?
1: He, we, no. Uh, Usually when we had dinner with the colonel, we would go to his restaurant across the street from where they lived, which is actually, they called it the Colonel's Lady, and it was owned by his wife, Claudia. And the colonel would usually order steak. (laughs) Probably (laughs) sick of chicken.
0: But I will say, this (laughs) is the most disappointing part of the interview, to find out Colonel Sanders never made you fried chicken. (laughs)
1: Well, he did make breakfast. He did make me breakfast. After I moved to Philadelphia, I'd been away from Louisville for uh, maybe a couple of years. And it was coming up on the 100th anniversary of the Kentucky Derby. And my co-anchor, Vince Leonard, and I owned an airplane in partnership. And our sportscaster, Al Meltzer, had been in the Air Force. He had started out as a cadet, was going to be a pilot, and then World War II ended, and that was the end of his flying career, but he still liked to fly. And he came in the office one day, one afternoon, and he said, Hey, Mort, why don't you and Vince and I get in your airplane and fly down for the Kentucky Derby? It's a 100th anniversary, and he said we could be there probably in two or three hours from Philadelphia. So Vince and I talked it over, and I said, The problem, Al, is that at this late time, Louisville. I said, you wouldn't be able to get a room for 100 miles uh, of the Kentucky Derby. He said, well, don't you, aren't you friends with Colonel Sanders? I said, yeah, I am. But I said, he can't. I don't think he's the Colonel. So I called him. I said, Colonel, the three of us here, uh, my colleagues and I would like to fly down for the Kentucky Derby. But I said, uh, do you think there's any chance you could get us a hotel room? Ah, you boys aren't staying in any hotel room. Stay at my house. So... I was kind of blown away by that. I knew we were friends, and, but uh, I said, Colonel, we couldn't impose no imposition. So he said, you you got to come stay. So we flew down to Bowman Field the day before the Derby, and uh, he picked us up at the airport in his limousine and wearing his white suit and his little tie and went to his house. Well, we, we set in his private box for the Derby, which was fun. And then the next morning before we left... He came around and woke us up about six o'clock and he said, come on down, boys. I got breakfast ready. He and his wife had separate kitchens because he was still very much the cook. He had made wheat germ pancakes and biscuits with red eye gravy and sausage and and country ham. And I mean, he had a feast spread out. And I I have some pictures of it, a picture in the book, I think, of that breakfast. And uh, certainly one of the memorable events of my uh, career as a journalist.
0: A picture of that meal on Instagram, had Instagram existed at that time, would have made you an influencer beyond influencers more (laughs) the missed opportunities. All right. That is awesome. That is awesome. I, I still don't think I can get over that. He didn't make you fried chicken. But anyway, I'm going to get over it. That's on me. That's on me. All right. So then we move to Philadelphia. And this is of note where Jessica Savage comes into your life. You're, you're rocking as the anchor. And they come to you one day. I this in, When I was reading the story, it sort of played out very similar to how they introduced uh, Veronica Horningstone in the movie, where they come mm-hmm. to you and you're like, It's Anchor Man, not Anchor Lady. <laughs> <laughs> and uh,
1: <laughs> well... A lot has been made about the male chauvinism, I have to say, and I've I've searched my mind pretty thoroughly to make sure that I remember correctly, but I really did not have any prejudice against Jessica. First of all, I was co anchoring the new news with Marcia Rose Chestak. And uh so the idea of working with a woman on the air was not the problem. I think there were two problems when the management said we're bringing in this, this young reporter from Houston to co-anchor 530 News. Number one, she was very young. I think she was 26 at the time. I was in my early 30s. I thought, and I'd gone through graduate school. I'd been at the network for five years. I thought, she's really not qualified to sit beside me. You know, it's just a, a, an overblown sense of my own importance and value, number one. Number two, and, and this again was an ego thing, I thought, you know, we're doing very well in the ratings. Who needs a co-acre? So, you know, a lot was made in the, uh, in the movies about his chauvinism and the fact that he just didn't think a woman was worthy. That, that was not my case. I didn't think I needed a co-acre. I wasn't anxious to share the desk. And I also thought she was too young and inexperienced.
0: There you have it. There you have it. I just also you know, just it's hard to not think about Anchorman when you're reading some of the bits of the story. You know, it's like Mm -hmm. you know, I could pick you know, we're here. We're hey Mort, it's it's all about diversity. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you remember what uh Ron Ron Burgundy defines (laughs) diversity as. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. An old wooden shit. All right, so I you get recruited to Chicago and of note, Bill Curtis kind of uh Sabotaged your career in Chicago, but Bill Curtis later went to do the voiceover for Anchorman. So the the thing that I read in the beginning of the episode, the real version, was read by Bill Curtis, who uh, sabotaged your career in Chicago. And
1: I and I ran into him. Yeah. <laughs> well, that might be a little harsh. I don't think Bill sabotaged my career. I think.
0: Didn't he get you fired? Did, wasn't it like, I'm,
1: I'm going to renew, but more it's got to go? Well, uh, that's what I was told by the news director at that time, that uh, Bill had. And I kind of understand it. I mean, they, they brought me in to replace Bill. And once his New York deal fell through, which it did at that time, and he had been at the station, I think, 13 years. I had been there less than a year. And I think he, it was as though they had, they had hired two quarterbacks, to be first string quarterbacks, and obviously somebody's going to be on the bench, you know, a good part of the time. And, uh, I didn't want that, and Bill certainly wasn't going to let it be him. So uh, hang on just one minute. I was brought in to eventually replace Bill, and the idea was that they would have me co anchor with him when his co-anchor Walter Jacobson was off. I would have two-on-two uh, on, two on the weekends. Uh, I would do some reporting. Basically, they would get the audience familiar with me uh, so that when Bill did go to New York, I could move right into his shoes. Well, his New York deal fell through. Uh, Bob Wessler, who was had been the manager of BBM in Chicago, became president of the network, and then he got fired. And when he got fired, Bill's deal evaporated. So I don't, Fully fault Bill for being uncomfortable when he decided to renew his contract. And I was told point blank by the news director the day they fired me, he said, uh, because I said, you know, you've got plenty of work here for another anchor. He said, yes, but Bill has made it clear to management that if he signs on to stay, you have to go. So I guess in that sense, uh, you know, did he sabotage my career? I don't know. He had to look out for Bill.
0: Well, we can thank Bill Curtis because whatever happened that led you to Detroit now we're in 1978 and nope. it's funny the one thing i learned i mean i've i've lived here my whole life and it's like they changed the name of the station to WDIV when you were coming they're like d and in your book it says d stands for detroit and then iv 4 detroit 4 and i'm like mm-hmm. oh I, ne- <laughs> 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 I never got that i know what you mentioned earlier one of your Jewish friends said, you needed more Jesus. This Jewish friend says, this book needed more Bill Bonds. I needed to hear more, more talking about Bill Bonds.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Bill and I were never close friends, obviously. You know, we were working at the same hours, so we didn't socialize. Whenever we were together in social situations, which we infrequently were, we we were very civil to each other. I can remember one occasion where... He and I were waiting to do interviews with Vice President Dan Quayle, and uh, we were out at some place in, around Dearborn, I think it might have been in Dearborn, and we had our cameras set up for Channel 7 and Channel 4, and Bill and I are just sitting there and we had to wait about an hour, and that was probably the longest and most interesting conversation that we ever had during our uh, tenures in Detroit. Bill was uh, an interesting guy. He was a character, very different in his approach to news from me and that was uh, that's that was fine. That was what the Washington Post intended. They didn't want to out Billy Billy. They wanted to, to offer the uh, community a different news product than what Bill did. But there really wasn't a lot that I could have said about him. I did my introductory chapter to, to first coming to Detroit, as you know, opens up with Bill Bonds. But that was, uh, and I won't reveal too much about that because it's uh, kind of an interesting story, yeah, I think. <laughs> no, I was just
0: joking. yeah, I was just joking around. The, uh, for those of you listening who aren't from Detroit and didn't live during that era, Bill Bonds was the head anchor at a competing station. And Bill Bonds was known just to just go on these rambles and likely under the um, you know, drunk. and like it was just like if, if somebody really explained Bill Bonds to you, You'd be like, no way. So, <laughs> no way. Just an over-the-top character. He was in one of the Planet of the Apes movies, I think, uh, as Bill Bonds.
1: Well, I've had people say to me, you know, I can't understand how Will Ferrell got the idea for Anchorman movie from you when Bill Bonds was around. So there you have it. <laughs> because you, are you, Mort <laughs> crim, have have that
0: level of integrity, which I still think Ron has. Ron wasn't like this you know, drunken, crazy person who would go, you know, Bill Bonds would have been likely one of the other people that would be jealous yeah. of the Ron Burgundy character or, or yeah. you in this scenario if you were drawing the characters. <laughs> so anyway, I was just joking, but it was just it was fun to read about you mentioning Bill Bonds.
1: <laughs> it was an interesting competition. And uh, I always uh, respected and admired Bill as a competitor. And I, and I think he did me. We each did our own thing and we each had our own uh, loyal audience.
0: I loved, I skipped over this just because I was so excited to to say Bill Bonds' name, but I love the idea that you came to Detroit because it was an opportunity to help an old beat-up city find its way back. And I know we definitely needed that back then. Here we are now, that was 1978, now we're 2022. And, you know, the city's like completely different. It's like, I used to, I worked down there for like a while and it's just a It's a great place. So great.
1: It is. And uh, yeah, that, that chapter in the book just kind of wrote itself because that really was just the uh, progression. Uh, my wife and I had uh, been flown out to Los Angeles to be interviewed by KNXT, I believe was the CBS station in LA. CBS was trying very hard to keep me within the CBS family. They offered me a job uh, at uh, WCBS in New York. It wouldn't have been chief anchor job, but it, they would have kept me within the family and they would have had me doing some anchoring and reporting. And, and my old station in Philadelphia, KYW, offered me a job to come back there. But I remember Jim Snyder saying to me, he said, I know you're being courted by uh, some more glamorous cities than Detroit. Detroit at that time was still really just reeling from what had happened to it during the riots in the late 60s. And the white flight to the suburbs and the erosion of the tax base. And I mean, the, the city was in and, and the punch that the auto industry had taken. The city was reeling. And he said, I know you've had some more glamorous offers or opportunities uh, to go to places that would be a lot more inviting than Detroit. But he said, how old are you? And I, I believe at the time I was 42. And he said, Well, then you've got about half your career left. He said, there seemed to me there are worse ways that you could spend the second half of your career than helping an old, beat-up city find its way back. Maybe it was the minister in me, the evangelist, that looked at that challenge and thought, yeah, you know, you're right. Maybe this city needs me more than I need to go someplace else. That challenge really resonated with me. I never regretted it. I, I found the uh, the opportunity to come in and become a part of the community and, and help with charities and fundraisers and just to integrate myself fully into the life of Detroit. And it'll always be home. I mean, we've we retired to Florida, but, but Detroit, that's where I raised my kids. It's where I had my career, most of it, and it will always be home.
0: Well, thanks for choosing Detroit.
1: So you won
0: Emmys. By 1985, you were you beat you were beaten, Bill Bonds. You've uh, you've been. Indicted, uh, indicted, inducted into the <laughs> not yet. <laughs> <laughs> you've been indicted on three counts. Of <laughs> Mort's on the run. He's in, that's why he's in Florida. Inducted into the broadcast pioneers of Philadelphia, Michigan and Illinois broadcast hall of fame. So, quite an amazing career. I could see where Will Farrell or anyone would want to use you as a role model to create the perfect anchor man. <laughs> So, ever since you retired, you retired in 1997. I know you started a communications company. How do you fill your days now?
1: Well, talking to people like you. Thank you. Promoting the book, still doing some writing. I'm probably going to be, now that we're coming out, hopefully, knock wood, coming out of the COVID challenge, I hope in the next few months to be setting up a speaking and and book tour, primarily in Florida, at least initially. I'm doing a lot of creating videos. I have a full studio set up here, and I'm producing videos for my family. I call them uh, family legacy videos. And I have tons of old 8mm movies, some that my dad took, some 70, 80 years old, VHSs that I've had over the years of the family. And I've digitalized all of this. And I have a I have two Macs, but I have one behind me that I use for uh, editing. And so I'm producing DVDs, trying to get all this stuff in a more permanent form uh, before all this videotape and film totally deteriorates. I have a lot of audio tape. I have me as a disc jockey broadcaster back when I was 18 years old on audio tape. Slim crim and uh, slim crim I've got the slim crim doing country music a DJ so a lot of that stuff I'm integrating the audio with old video so it's not it's not lip sync or anything like that but you get you get this for my kids they will hear me as an 18 19 year old and they will see me in video and so I'm doing some of that stuff. Uh, I call it legacy videos for the kids. Occasionally, I do some stuff. We had a neighbor who passed away, and I I did a video tribute uh, of his life. He had been Commodore of the Gross Point, or, Gross Point. There's a Freudian slip of the Queens Harbor Yacht Club the year before I became Commodore, and he was a very good friend, and so I got a lot of video and wrote a script and put in music and made a nice tribute. I do that kind of thing just because I enjoy it, because it's fun and and I think it's helpful to people. Once in a while, I do something commercial. Uh, Are you familiar with the name uh, Olivia Rodrigo? No. Olivia Rodrigo was the Time magazine entertainer of the year this year. She is a young, I think now she's maybe 19, came out of the Disney children's world. But she is, uh, they tell me, among the younger set, the hottest thing going right now. And I got a call from her agent a few months back and said, Olivia would like you to do the voiceover for the trailer for her first album, which is called Sour. And I said, Olivia who? I didn't say that to the agent, but after we hung up, so I checked around and among the the younger grandchildren in my family, they said, oh, grandpa, Olivia, she is the hottest thing going right now in the music world. So, I got back to the agent and I said, how in the world did Olivia Rodrigo call an old granddaddy who's retired in Florida and want me to do the voiceover? And she said, well, Olivia heard you on White Stripes doing Little Acorns. She loved your voice and she wants you to do her trailer. And I thought, what a world. So I did it. I uh, We struck a deal and I <laughs> I did the trailer for, for this hot young singer who... Uh, I was just absolutely blown away that she would have any idea who I was.
0: Did you negotiate a better deal than you did with Jack White? <laughs> no. No.
1: <laughs> but this was only a trailer. This wasn't going to become a platinum record. Yeah, that's an interesting story in the book, too, isn't it?
0: So many great stories. So The book, again, is anchored, A Journalist's Search for Truth. And uh, you can get it
1: at com. What was that special code again, Mort? Okay, if you input the code HOLIDAY, you'll immediately get $10 off the price. I hope a lot of people, uh, you know, it. the book really has two audiences. It has, of course, the audience that is uh, interested in news and Ron Burgundy and the whole behind the scenes thing about covering the news. It's got some interesting stories. But there's also, for the people who are thinking about life's big questions, the the, the people who are still struggling with their philosophy or their theology or, or trying to make sense of life in a confusing world. That's been my struggle. That's been my story. And uh, if you enjoy writing along and maybe benefiting a little bit or at least just being intrigued by how somebody else has made that journey and, and the path they've followed, I think this is a good book. It's a great book. I loved
0: every second of it. And I loved every second of talking with you. Thank you so much. I can't thank
1: you enough. Thank you, Jeff. It's been a pleasure, and the time has really flown. Has it really been an hour?
0: I know. Crazy, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much, Mort. My pleasure. All right. How awesome was Mort Krim? Don't act like you're not impressed. Definitely check out Mort Krim's book at mortkrimspeaks.com. Use the code HOLIDAY to get $10 off your autographed copy of the book. Tons of great stories, and goes a lot deeper than the conversation we had. So definitely check it out. You'll love it. I enjoyed reading it very, very much. All right. Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for another trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at Hashtag Roundup. Download the free, always free, doesn't cost a penny app from the Google Play Store or iTunes App Store. Get notified every time a hashtag goes live. Tweet along with us, and one day one of your tweets may show up on a future episode of Live from Detroit, The Jeff Duoskin Show. Fame and fortune await you. This week's hashtag is inspired by my obsession with Mort Crims friendship with Colonel Sanders. Colonel Sanders is all about the Kentucky Fried Chicken and Friday Fondue. A weekly game on Hashtag Roundup was all about Hashtag Chicken Films. That's right. The ultimate mashup of movies and chickens. That's right. Mash those two things together and what do you got? You got the hilarity that becomes Hashtag Chicken Films. The ultimate chicken pun game right here on Hashtag Roundup brought to you by Friday Fondue. No secret to the recipe of these tweets. Just be hilarious. So let's check out some hashtag chicken films. I love cluckabies. Lord of the wings. Play it again, Sam. That's more of a chicken quote, but I'll let it go because it's Tom Harrington. Bach to the future. A cluckwork orange. The hills have beaks. These are some amazing hashtag chicken films. The ultimate chicken film mashup hashtag. Coop Dreams, My Breast Friend's Wedding, No Cornish Hens for Old Men, The Best Little Hen House in Texas, The Joy Cluck Club, Sweet Comb, Alabama, The Reese Witherspoon Classic, and of course, A Few Good Hens, Look Who's balking Bark, Bark, Poultry Geist, Grumpy Old Hen, and of course, our final hashtag chicken film has to be a KFC reference, The Bucket List, whoa! All right. You can find all those tweets retweeted at Jeff Jawaskin's show on Twitter. Head on over there, give me a follow and like and retweet these tweets. Show some love to the tweeters. Play along and hopefully one day one of your tweets will be read on the show. How exciting would that be for you? huh? you could tell your friends, I mean, it's a, it's a big day. It'll be a big day. You'll be you'll like, be the star of family dinner. Well, here we are. The hashtag's done. The interview's done. That can only mean one thing. Episode 112 is coming to a close. I'd like, of course, to thank again my special guest, Mort Krim. And, of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you've heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at the thejeffdwoskinshow.com
1: or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show, And we'll see you next time.